If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is a summary of the past four podcasts focusing on new retailers, a new offline measurement tool, and finally, what retailers should be doing with Black Friday. There's a lot more to the retail subject, so we won't be stopping with this series. But in case you are wondering, hey, Allison, why did you choose to spend a whole month on this topic? Let me tell you. As you may know, this podcast is about accelerating customer equity, which basically means nurturing and being of service to your customer base in such a strategic way that you both win. Your company gains long-term revenue and your customers see more valuable and satisfying products that fill a need in their lives. Now, if that sounds lofty, maybe, but take a look at what some of these new brands are standing for. Things like feminine power, sustainable flower farming, they tend to connect and align with empowered consumers. And that, my friends, is where it's at. So let's dig into that theme a little bit more. First up in our series was Kate Fernandez from beauty innovator Winky Lux. I invited Kate on the show for two reasons. First, the company is just only three years old, but it's paying really good attention to CLV and you know we love that on this show. Kate talked about how using traditional page views and sales metrics would have led them down the path of cutting a product for lackluster performance. And frankly, that's what a lot of companies do. They look at basic metrics, aggregate metrics, and they don't really look at them in a very precise fashion. But what Winky Lux did uh, with the help of Castora, they actually looked a little deeper at who was buying it. And here's Kate sharing a little more about what they did. The data that we were getting from our email service provider, from our e-commerce platform, from our social media analytics tool, it just wasn't rich enough for us to kind of make the decisions that we wanted to make and really flush out things like our email marketing strategy. Um, so we're, we're looking at the data on Castor specifically lifetime value data. Um, and for I was we were going to kill a product. We were going to kill um, our glossy boss, which is a very good gloss, but it's underwhelming in that it's it's a gloss. You know, there are a lot of different glosses out there. Um, so we were like, oh, you know, maybe we should just kill this too. We see the data on Castor, and it ends up that while the gloss doesn't seem like one of our best sellers, it actually has the highest lifetime value attached to it. 
And we ended up now we're slating a few shade extensions for next year. So that kind of helped us in our product strategy. Same thing with, you know, our unibrow. We were worried about the unibrow. Unibrows, um, it's a universal eyebrow pencil. So the unibrow is is a funny name. But we were worried it's one of those products that when a woman chooses her eyebrow pencil, it's sticky. You know, she's going to go back to that eyebrow pencil because she knows that it works. And products like that are slow on the uptake in the beginning because, you know, you really have to convince the girl or the man, you know, I don't judge, whether or not they should be using this. And then once they have it in their hand, the hope is that they become returning customers. And we see with Castor that that's the case. So now we're definitely thinking about making second version that might be like a micro um, based on some reviews that we've had and the data that we found on Castor. So let's talk about that a minute because I want to make sure people understand when you say lifetime value, you're not talking about the lifetime value of the product or the, the product volume sales, as we talk about on the show quite a lot. We talk about customer lifetime value. So what you are seeing is that people buying a certain product had a longer life, had a higher lifetime value spend or perhaps um, an interesting trend line that made you say, hey, we don't want to kill that product because that's just going to, it's actually called the product death spiral. Uh, there's, a, there's a great example from um, that Pete Fader uses in his Wharton classes, and I don't know if it came from there originally, but his example goes something like this, like a grocery store sees that they have a certain spread of products and some are making money and some aren't, they start cutting out the ones that aren't making money. But as a result, the sales spiral down and down and down because people who are valuable customers, when you change the lens, that were buying, let's say, beer and diapers, um, were suddenly not able to get the beer so they don't buy the diapers. So you invoke this spiral. Exactly. And second, I thought the way that Winky Lux emphasizes the brand and introduces it to new customers was very innovative. And I actually experienced this myself. The purpose is to connect a new or maybe a dabbling customer, like somebody who's just had a little experience with the brand and help them by introducing the brand's personality, almost like you'd introduce a friend. You get to know a little bit more about the products, why they were developed, what the rationale was behind them. Instead of just seeing the basic packaging, you get to experience the products. Here's what Kate says about that experience. The people that we were meeting in real life were three times more likely to return to us and be loyal to us on digital. So the experience stores are almost kind of like the feature of acquisition for us. Um, we feel like when when a when a customer comes into the store and they see all of the pink, they see the flowers, they see the packaging, and then they see this curtain and they're like, what is behind the curtain? And we're like, well, it's our experience, you know? It's a playland of product themes, art installations, where, you know, the focus, while it is product themed, the focus is not to sell product. The focus is to give the customer an experience, to give them, you know, a connection to the brand so they really understand the brand. And it's that understanding that drives loyalty. 
In the next episode, I spoke with Phil Irvine from The Books. Now, The Books is a new internet retailer based on flowers. And you might say, oh my gosh, aren't there so many of those? You know, didn't 1-800-Flowers just take it all? And the answer is no. In fact, they didn't. The Books has found a very interesting niche around sustainable flower farming. Phil had more examples of how CLV was used to correctly adjust the mix of email communications so that you had a broader blend of get in the game kind of email communications alongside trigger-based email communications which targeted the right customers with the right promotions. And then he went on to actually share a bit about the right customer metrics and the kind of opportunities that he thinks still remain out there. He'll here's a bit about what Phil had to say about the campaigns and then about the customer metrics behind them. When I first got here, all we really had in place were, um, you know, kind of typical for e-commerce companies, order confirmation emails, shipping confirmation, order delivered type of campaigns. We had an abandoned card email series, but outside of that, we really didn't have any triggered or event-based types of campaigns. And I think the mix was 70% promotional versus 30% on the triggered basis as far as the revenue distribution. And as I've kind of come in here and worked with the team and leveraged a lot of uh, new tools that we have in place, we've been able to adjust that mix to be more 50-50 and just conceptually, the optimal state that an organization wants to get to is sending a communication to a customer that's most relevant and most timely, where it's going to make sense to the customer to engage with a brand versus previously, we were kind of just sending mass blast promotions to everybody where our most engaged customers, they were extremely interested, but you know, for some that just maybe weren't in market to gift at the time, um, you know, wasn't relevant for them. So. Having a bigger focus on the customers that have either showed or have the potential to show more value in terms of dollars, referrals, potential to sign up for subscriptions, and specifically going after that cohort of customers with paid media channels. There, it's going to justify the CAC to LTV ratio that makes sense to, to, to scale profitably. That's right. That, that makes perfect sense. And, and I love that approach because I think it's fairly unique. Just like you said before, people tend to stop at CAC only, which is customer acquisition cost, and they don't really look at the long-term value. Um, so it sounds like you're definitely doing that. What are areas where you want to do more or you think you could get more out of CLV? You know, we're still at the early stages of having this in markets on you know, kind of an automated basis. We're still in a mode where we're, we're doing one-off tests to, to continue to justify this. I think there's a big area of opportunity is when you think of kind of optimal digital experiences, you know, with customers these days, and especially millennials, video content is crucial to capture the attention of the average customer. And I think a big opportunity for us is trying to align video experiences that tie into how we want to differentiate ourselves of capturing life's meaningful moments. And I think in the future for us, it's how can we surface compelling video content that'll further engage our customer base to stay loyal um, to the books versus other competitors in the space. Um, you know, we have some 
video content that's out in the market on our website. We do some engagement type social through Instagram and Facebook, but it's, it's not really targeted to specific customers. And I think that's a huge opportunity for us, like based off of customer preferences or if we know recipients that they like to buy for, um, you know, an, an idea we've thrown out there is aligning video content about gifting to mothers, say, for instance, to people that we know have bought for their moms in the past. So I think, I think that's really where we're trying to go in, in the future here. Then our episodes got closer to Thanksgiving, and I frankly wanted to find a symbolic way just to give back a bit. So the next two interviews were with advisors to my company. First, my dear friend and mentor, Gary Angel, who taught me everything I know about digital measurement. Uh, He literally wrote the book on measuring the digital world, and that is what it's called, measuring the digital world. And you should go and buy it right now. But he hasn't stopped there. Gary has a new company called Digital Mortar, and it applies some of the same online measurement richness and precision to the offline world. And that's no easy task. It's literally like web analytics in the late 1990s when we were looking at web blogs. So he's got his work cut out for him. Uh, But Gary goes on to talk about how in-person brand experiences just have tremendous power and the in-store brand experience is really designed to support or erode the lifetime value of a customer. So here's a little bit about what Gary has to say. One of the things that I think is really interesting and, and kind of gratifying too is that you see some really good internet brands these days starting to open up stores. And, and I think that speaks to the fact that that in-person experience is an incredibly powerful branding experience. You know, we used to do, we used to do a lot of pretty sophisticated analytics around a lot of different problems. And retention and churn was one of the problems that, that I studied pretty frequently. And invariably, when we built churn models, the things that drove churn were often in-person interactions. You know, the interactions you had with, I had a terrible call center experience, or I went into the store and they were rude to me, or I had to stay in line for friggin' 45 minutes, and I'm never going back there again. Those in-person experiences are tremendously impactful brand builders for good and ill. And I think, you know, it's, it's both sides of that. And I do agree, too. I think, you know, people sometimes assume that high-value customers, that they captured all of them. Well, that's not true, obviously. There's constant churn in that population. There's figuring out who the new potential high-value customers are and how you get them into your program so that you can make sure that they get the kind of personalized attention you want. And I think this kind of in-store measurement allows you to sort of expand down your reach in terms of understanding who shoppers are, not just the people who are your absolute top-tier loyalty program, credit card-holding shoppers, but all the rest of the people. Delivering great experiences to those people obviously matters, too. Um, And I think it it allows you really to understand much better where those people are, where they fit in that broader value chain. And finally, I wrapped up the pre-Thanksgiving thank you fest with Pete Fader. Pete is a quantitative marketing professor from Wharton before there really was such a thing. And he wrote the book on customer centricity, literally. It's called Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage. And now he has a new book called The Customer Centricity Playbook. And if you listen to the episode, the full episode, there's actually uh, a discount code that we give toward the end of the episode episode should you like to go and buy it with a nice 30% discount. So in this episode, Pete 
just rails on the stupidity of Black Friday as a retail event, but he stopped short of saying that it should be eliminated altogether. Instead, he urges retailers to think more about the long-term purpose of such an event and how perhaps it could be used to fuel the greater good of building up your best customers instead of catering to your worst. Uh, I highly recommend listening to this full episode, but here's a big snippet of our conversation. The combination of digital and customer lifetime value is just, I think, almost unbeatable. It's a fantastic tool. So true, so true. And, and that's really what, what led to the, the revelations that, that I mentioned at the outset. Uh, the, the idea that, that not all customers are created equal and there are observable aspects, whether it's behaviors, sometimes it's demographics, but usually not. Uh, but but, but uh, things that they do or just things about the customer um, that can be indicative of what they'll be worth uh, over the long run. So we really can start to talk about lifetime value even before we've seen you live your whole life. And that's what gives us pivot towards customer centricity. The fact that we can anticipate, maybe not right all the time, but we can anticipate which customers are likely to be the most valuable ones. And so if we have a limited number of touches that we can give out, if, the, if we're gonna kind of queue up our customers uh, have some kind of priority for customer service or some other bonuses that we're giving out, that we should be willing to kind of go out on a limb and say, you know what, I think these customers over here are going to be the good ones more than those over there. And we should now have the, the, the courage, the ability to pick and choose like that. And that's what drives us in this direction of customer centricity. It all starts with CLV, but it really requires us to be able to get those early signals and the ability to take action on them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that is a fantastic cue up to Black Friday. So tell us a little bit about why you think Black Friday is a bad way for retail to go about getting new business. So let's start with the kind of the, the snarkiest, most sarcastic, cynical skeptical way to look at it, and then we can kind of work backwards to kind of put it all in a proper perspective. Black Friday is the day when you identify your worst, worst, worst customers and treat them like royalty. Okay, all you terrible customers, all you customers who are very price sensitive and you rarely buy with us except when we have stuff on sale and you're kind of difficult to manage, um, we are going to line all of you up and we're going to have special hours. We're going to pay our employees double just to let you destroy our store and buy stuff at deep, deep discounts, knowing full well that you won't be back again until this time next year. Does that sound like a recipe for success or what? Uh, now, again, I'm overstating a little bit, but that's the, the spirit of it is what Black Friday is all about, is, is going against everything that we were just saying that not all customers are created equal, so let's take the worst ones and do far more for them and with them than we should. So why do you think companies do this? Couple of reasons. Number one, uh, uh, there's still a lot of companies out there that don't have the visibility into the individual customers and they don't believe what I'm saying and they say, hear all that ka-ching going on, we're selling a lot of stuff. Let's not worry about tomorrow. Let's just celebrate today. So there's a, a lot of that just getting kind of caught up in the moment. Um, there's also the naive belief that if we can be their best friend, then all of a sudden they will turn from ugly ducklings into beautiful swans. 
and that once we have information about them and we have this touch point with them, that we can start cross-selling and upselling, and they're going to love us, and they're going to buy from us more often and at full price? Yeah, right. And then the third part is it's just competition. We know that our competitors are doing it, and so we better do it too because we don't want to get caught flat-footed. So there's just a lot of reasons that in and of themselves are actually kind of understandable. But when you do step back and look at the big picture, which is the future projected value of customers and value of the customer base as a whole, that it's not really a good thing to do. Now, all these episodes are available on ambitiondata.com slash podcast. And I highly recommend if you like a little bit of a snippet that you heard from one of the guests, then you'll probably like the full episode. Please do go and pick it up and hear the full thing. Uh, these summaries and, and crib notes that I do once in a while are great for folks who just didn't have a chance to catch that episode, or maybe you missed one or two along the way. That's the reason why I do this. But it's really designed not to give you all the richness, but to give you a taste of some of the best stuff that's in those episodes and you can go and catch the full amount um, on the full episode. So now what should you take away from all these experts? I really have two points. One is I know folks say this all the time, but it's really not offline or online or digital versus real world. Why? Why is that? Because when you think through the customer's point of view, then your brand is like a person. And it's really even more like a friend. And my friendships don't change just because I talk to you via online channels like Facebook or email versus when I might see you in person. And I sure hope yours don't either. Further, a person is not a channel. This drives me bananas when people are always talking about channel, channel, channel. It's people that we're selling to. So watch your language and get your head out of your channel ass. Use more internal language to reflect people talking to other people in one customer-centric world. Take it from Gary and Kate and Phil. They know what they're talking about. And second, that brings me to why is it so hard for traditional companies to change? Well, Pete points out that the short-term sales and the competitive pressures are very good, not necessarily good, but they're very important pieces that feed a sacred cow like Black Friday. They just exist. But there are a ton of incentives and processes and people that are keeping the old ways in place. Look around your company. Can you point to a chief customer officer? Do people own channel operations like website and email? Where is the person who owns the high value customers? Where is that department? And who monitors how these folks are feeling and what they might need? Now, if you're the CEO, don't let anything like the org chart or a poorly configured MarTech tool come between you and a deep knowledge of your customers, especially their long-term potential. Your team needs air cover to make this change towards more customer-centric knowledge, more customer-centric language, but that deep, comprehensive customer knowledge should be your number one priority, especially going into 2019, because the 
new retailers, they don't have any legacy hangups, and they are going after it like gangbusters. Now, if you want to talk more about this subject, or perhaps find a way to calculate the value of your own customer base, you can reach me at Allison at Ambition Data, or at a Hartso on Twitter, or Allison Hartso on LinkedIn. We've got many ways to help you improve your customer centricity, even if you have no idea who's interacting with you today. So as always, links to everything we discussed, especially these episodes that I referred to, are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Thank you, as always, for joining me today. Remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.